0: Hey folks, how we doing? Um, Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is educating about and working towards a true people's liberation movement, and hopefully one day a true proletarian revolution. Um, It's seeming more likely, uh, but until then, I am your host, Josh, and thanks for stopping by. Um, so the last few episodes I've done have been just kind of little introductory, kind of, like, broad, explanatory episodes to try to get people interested in maybe me doing a, like, a Serious Socialism 101 series, um, and... You know, I use that word serious very lightly because if you listen to my show, you know a majority of the stuff that I do is unrehearsed, unscripted, and often, you know, ranty and unnecessary sometimes. Um, But, I mean, ultimately, at at the end of the day, um, as you just heard by my honking, I, uh, I usually end up having to record while I'm driving to work because, A, I don't have much time on my hands other than working and other responsibilities, and B, I am awful at time management. <laughs> so, you know, usually I either try to write a blog and don't have enough brain power or time in the morning to get that out in a manner that's like readable um, because I can rant a lot more on my podcast I feel like than I can in a blog because it's just it's just awful to read um, but yeah so I either try to write <clears throat> a blog and can't in time um before i have to leave for work or something pops into my head um as i'm just kind of hanging out in the morning having coffee and smoking um and i want to do a little episode to talk about it so that's kind of what we're going to do today um this is not uh like a socialism 101 episode necessarily Um, so if that's what you were kind of looking for, that's hopefully going to be coming up soon. Um, but yeah, I just kind of wanted to talk about a few different things. Um, one, most importantly being, um, climate change, climate crisis Two, being, um, kind of what's happening in Cuba and what's going on, just kind of all throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, um, maybe talk about why that is a little bit, and then the last thing I just want to finish on is just like, uh, a, <clears throat> a little bit about Marxism, um, but we'll see, we'll see if I end up getting there, um, because I kind of just gave myself a little bit of a, a plate, but, so first and foremost, climate crisis. Um, I just listened to Rev Left's uh, Rev Left Radio, Brett's last episode, um, talking about kind of his fears and anxieties and how that kind of like dread is making him feel about climate crisis. And I've noticed it. it's almost a feeling in the air. Um, I've noticed that people my age are like hyper, hyper aware of climate crisis because just about everybody else is denying it except for the people who are actually suffering under it themselves. And then those of us who are pointing that out, um, those are the only few people who seem to give a shit and so it's really sad talking to some of my friends who like have zero aspirations who have you know little hope and and a hell lot less (coughs) motivation than they should being intelligent you know uh awesome people. Um, And a lot of that, (coughs) excuse my cough, I still have this gross cough. Um, I think a lot of that kind of stems from, (coughs) (coughs) excuse me, a lot of that stems from kind of being born right into a collapsing society. And I know that takes a lot of balls to say, you know, for a white kid from central New York To, to say, oh, society's collapsing around us um, But it's true, I mean, you grow up And your whole life, if you pay attention at all Which, honestly, most people don't But those of us who have to for whatever reason or choose to At a very young age have all been exposed to just awfulness I mean... I was born in 99 so my whole life we have been at war in West Asia we have been in war in Afghanistan since I've been born so you know that kind of sets the you know that kind of sets the tone for the rest of life you know and and kind of you know the 2008 crisis being a very like monumental moment in my family's life we lost like ever like all our money which again wow super privileged thing to say but like being that i did admittedly grow up privileged like that was a monumental moment it was something that i couldn't ignore it outright um And so, you know, you have that, and then I think it was... Oh, and you also have Barack Obama's election in 2008, which I was actually very excited about at 9 years old. That was a big moment, you know, Um, because my parents are super racist. (laughs) And so, like, I got to watch my dad be mad that John McCain lost. That was pretty dope. Um, And then John McCain died. Boom! Sorry. Sorry. Um, (laughs) uh, but, yeah, fucking, climate crisis has always been there. Um, I can remember when, like, solar energy was, well, I remember when solar energy was more of, like, a talked-about thing in, like, the early 2000s. Like, people, like, were, like, amazed by it to some extent, and, uh... I actually had um, some pretty cool science teachers growing up who kind of, like, taught us about it, which made it, like, I think that much more, like... It stuck out that, that much more in my brain. Um, but I remember that being, like, a big deal and being like, oh, shit, like, the Earth is dying. <laughs> and then also for a majority of my life... Um, we have been in the sixth mass extinction and I, at, I mean, every kid wants to be a vet, right? But like, I don't know what it is, man. I like love animals. Like really, I don't know. I just love them all. But, um, so like learning about that, like was impactful to me. Like it made me sad. Like, I remember feeling sad, um, learning about animals dying and, like, you know, early social media, when I first began to have social media, like, seeing the pop-ups on Facebook or whatever of the articles, like, oh, there goes the last, you know, um, I think, snow, snow leopards? Snow, no, there was, like, a, there was, like, um, Either like a tiger, like a fucking cat type animal <laughs> um, that went extinct when I was a kid. That was like, I remember that. Like, again, this is like one of those things that, like, I don't know if it's because I have ADHD, but very specific moments like stick out in my brain, and that's another one of them. Um, but yeah, so like, climate crisis, um, the collapse of the earth, all that stuff is kind of always been on my mind, um, and because I am someone with incredible anxiety, anytime I think about it for, like, months, I'm just in this, like, awful headspace, uh, and, like, I don't know what to do, um, and that's kind of what Brett's episode was about uh, to some extent. I mean, he went into a lot of So, go ahead and go listen to that. Revolutionary Left Radio. Shout out, Brett. Um, But, like, I just sit around and think about it. And I'm like, what the fuck, man? What the fuck am I going to do? What are we going to do? And something that I learned about recently, which I should really learn about and maybe do an episode on, is the People's Accord of Cochabamba in 2011, which was a pact um, that was made between a lot of the non-aligned states, um, folks who aren't in like the G7 or NATO or any of those like Western trade organizations or, you know... International meddling <laughs> associations. Um and it was an agreement, or yeah, excuse me, it's not the People's Accord, it's the People's Agreement of Cochabamba. I was wondering why that sounded wrong. But they something like 70 different countries came together and drafted up this piece of, you know. I guess one might call it legislation, except I think it's more of like, there's a different word for it. Regardless, it is an agreement with uh, Mother Earth on how to truly combat climate crisis, like militantly and in a disciplined manner. Within that, there is something called a carbon budget, um, which is an uh, you know equivalency of like how much carbon has been uh, put into the atmosphere, and kind of what what is the cap where then we're fucked, and keeping track of every single country's carbon emissions to make sure we don't get to that point. <laughs> In a lot of the cases, that means the United States and other huge western powers would have to basically completely abolish their military because the United States military is the largest polluter in the world thanks thanks folks like it's not it's not you and I who need to do some recycling it's not you and I who need to trade in our cars and get bikes although public transportation would really be solving and helping a lot of problems why the fuck aren't we doing it um, not us, our governments who are supposed to be, you know, using the money for good purposes. Any, Anyways, um, it also has some sort of a debt fund that Western powers have to pay in order to help underdeveloped nations developed, develop at a speedy rate because... You got to figure after all the carbon and everything else that's been put into the atmosphere from the industrialization of these massive Western powers, we are so close to warming the earth where we've gone, uh, 1.2 degrees warmer, um, at two, that is the most that we could handle, um likely most likely i i mean we have no guarantees here but <clears throat> it would be a way to get the technology to these countries without them having to go through different stages of development in order to get to those points the western you know countries that have the technologies and stuff like that giving them to them or giving them money to develop them or you know x y and z China's already doing that in a lot of cases. Um, China has a lot of shit they're also doing that, you know, one might say isn't spectacular with how they are progressing their Belt and Road Initiative, like, you know, kind of the removal of land in Armenia and other things like that. Uh, But I think we see the difference between option one and option two in this circumstance because option one is imperialism by the united states and other western powers is going in you know like in 2019 in no- uh in bolivia uh overthrowing the government by way of the military massacring indigenous people and trying to eliminate all the nationalization of the resources within Bolivia um, and that is one example, one recent example of what happens when countries try to self-determine and try to you know, self-sustain try to remove themselves from the world market uh, to whatever extent that they can uh, So When you have countries Trying to do things like this Right You see the reaction that we have But ultimately This is what Needs to happen Because These countries Are So Incredibly Indebted These By by way of not their own mistake, because when you live in a global capitalist society, and you are a colonized country who is not allowed to develop for yourself, who is not allowed to progress for yourself, who is not allowed to develop for yourself, or form, you know, any kind of income, you know, because like, for example, when Venezuela nationalized its oil reserves... That money isn't going to private corporations. It's going to the state. And then the state, which is a socialist state or a practicing socialist state, is going to use that money in whatever way they can in order to help benefit the Venezuelan people. Whereas a private company has no inclination, no real incentive, no real reason to do that. Um that is more likely for a state to do that. Um, but the U.S. then put sanctions on Venezuela so no one can trade with them. So now they're producing all this oil and they can't trade with anybody. Um, they put secondary sanctions on any country who does trade with those um, countries. And, and, and sanctions go on individuals But sanctions don't just affect individuals, especially when those sanctions are individuals who are in high political or government positions that need the power to trade, that need the power to govern properly, or else the people will be the ones to suffer, not the government officials. (coughs) Um, and the United States knows this. I mean, they're not, they're not stupid. Um, But the second option that we see here is what China is doing. And, you know, I think it's very valid to turn to this and say, oh, well, this is an immoral action. Uh, But I also think that it's unrealistic to think that anything moral can happen within such an immoral, capitalist, imperialist system. (laughs) You know, that's just kind of the fucked up reality. But what they're doing is... Obviously, they're trying to create their Belt and Road initiative. They're trying to um, develop, to whatever extent that they can. They're, they don't. They side trade. They sign trade deals with everyone. They participate in trade with everyone because China feels that it is not any outside country's uh, place to meddle in the internal affairs of another country. Now, that sounds quite different than what the United States is doing, right? But, you know, in this process, the buying up of land, the and stuff like that, that it looks bad and, it, you know, it is bad because that's not their land. The people who live on that land should be able to live on that land, but they're not going to be able to. Um, you know, if the United States came in and bought this land from Armenia it would be an even worse situation than this awful one that exists. Um, But really then, the Armenian people should be turning around and going after their own government and going after the Armenians who put that land up for sale in the first place, not the Chinese government for buying it because ultimately, you know, again, China is trying to take care of itself, which we might say well, what the fuck, and I can agree with you, because, you know, you wish that China could be so big that it could be helping these places, um, and maybe it can, but it has to, you know, also take into account that if it participates in anything other than that, World <clears throat> World War III is right around the corner. Um that's just the reality that again that is the fucked up reality that capitalism has created you can't play morality on that shit you can't you can't be like well that's bad or that's good because there's no such thing it's all bad everything in a capitalist system is bad that's why we're trying to overthrow it But I said I wanted to talk about Latin America and Marxism. And that's why I kind of brought up the people's agreement of Cochabamba is because that was a pact that was signed by mostly Latin American, Caribbean, and um, African and Asian countries. Now, we all know and see what's happening all throughout Latin America and the Caribbean with Cuba, with Venezuela, with Bolivia, with Chile, with Peru, with all these different countries. We see what's happening in Africa, in Zambia, in uh, uh, Eswanti, excuse me, it's it's also Swaziland, but I can't remember, it, it's Swanti, I believe, um, the last monarchy in Africa. Uh, you see the struggles in South Africa, you see the struggles all throughout Asia as well, in India, um, in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Iran, all throughout West Asia, um, commonly referred to as the Middle East. Um, But, you know, this is an improper classification um, based off of geography from, you know, years ago. But, anywho, um, we all see... What is happening throughout these countries, right? And whether it is Nicaragua, whether it is Peru, whether it is Cuba, Granada, Haiti, any of these countries throughout Central, South, Latin America, and the Caribbean, we see what happens when a country dares to stand up on its own two feet, right? Because that is precisely what these countries do. Whether they are perfectly socialist or not is not up to us to determine. You have your own bourgeoisie to deal with. Deal with that. Um, And no one gives a fuck about what a bunch of white leftists have to say about that shit. So just honestly, shut up because nobody cares. Um, But what we see is like all throughout the global South, when countries dare to try to cut themselves off from the capitalist snake. When they try to, you know, either service their debt or stop servicing their debt. You know, there's the famous speech by Thomas Sankara talking about, why don't we all just fucking not pay it? It's not our debt. The colonists made our, those our debts. We didn't make those our debts. The colonists did. Uh, and the imperialists, too. And <clears throat> there's all kinds of other things that they do. You know, obviously, they have socialist revolutions, like in Cuba, where they overthrew a dictatorship and then stood firmly for the last 60 years, only 70 miles away from Florida and from Cuba's number one enemy, the United States, uh, and su- have survived. To this point. And of course, we see what's going on in Cuba now, and we should recognize this as a, a symptomatic struggle that comes from 60 plus years of an embargo. Which, if you don't understand how an embargo works, you should look up the embargo on Cuba. They cannot get medicines, they cannot get fuel, they cannot get clothing, they cannot get food, they cannot get any necessary products from outside of their own borders. Now, look at everything you own and tell me how many of those things were produced in your own country. We live in a global capitalist market. Everything that countries need usually comes from outside of their borders. Now, That cripples a country. That cripples countries like Cuba. Because it means that they have to spend what little money they have because of the massive debts they are already in on trying to buy things. And that's why when you see a socialist revolution, then these countries end up trying to invest in their own infrastructures, create their own industry. But we are at a point now where, A, with climate crisis so incredibly explicit, it is impossible for all of these underdeveloped nations to develop as all the other nations did because it will kill our Earth. B, they can't do it on their own because the other countries all across the world, the United States, Europe, you know... They do not allow these countries the breathing room that they need to develop. They immediately put sanctions on them. They try to overthrow them. They install a coup. They, you know, incite a military junta. They accuse the president of being a narco trafficker when even their own evidence, CIA, or excuse me, DEA evidence says that over 90% of cocaine comes out of Colombia. If anything, stuff gets stored in Venezuela by Colombians who sneak across the border when they are possibly going to get caught for trying to traffic that. But then they accuse accuse Nicolas Maduro of being a narco trafficker when their own evidence says otherwise. And that is how the United States plays. That's how Europe plays. That's how Canada plays. So... I wanted to talk about Marxism. If you look at the struggles that are happening all throughout these countries... Oh, excuse me, actually. I want to say really quick with Cuba. All of this is a symptom of the embargo that has been on this country for 60 plus years. There is a crisis in Cuba. The Cuban government is doing everything it can with what little resources it has in order to provide for the people. But like I said... It's not enough. They can't trade. It's not enough. And so people are rightfully protesting. But if you look at the response to, A, counter-protesters in the thousands who are calling out, Soy fidel. I am fidel. You know, like, praising the revolution, supporting the revolution because they know that the little bits of neoliberalism that have been able to creep into the country, the little bit of capitalism that has been able to creep into the country is because of the inability for the revolution to truly stand on its own two feet under the circumstances that it exists under. It is a very difficult struggle, and it is one that they have been able to resist and and keep fighting for for over 65 years. For over 60 years, excuse me. Um, That's an incredible feat. And so you see a truly odd thing to us in the United States, which was every, if not almost every, government official got on a mask, got on their shoes, and went down to the protesters. They went down and started talking to them. They asked them their demands. They they expressed to them what struggles the government was having and why it's so difficult. And that is something we here in the United States have no fucking clue about. So when you hear people in the United States talking about what's going on in Cuba... First and foremost you need to recognize that, that there is a whole different reality that exists in Cuba that you and I do not have any comprehension of, no comprehension. We can't understand what it is like to live in a socialist reality when we live in a capitalist reality. So the very response by their government should show us what really is going on in Cuba. It is not a dictatorial regime. It is not an authoritarian government. These things are just, you know, accusations uh, levied by the United States and other international powers who have real benefits, who have real interests in seeing the Cuban revolution put down. Um, That's just the reality of the situation. And so we have to look at it in this correct manner. Otherwise, we are doing ourselves in a uh, disservice, um, you know, because we are ultimately going to be looking at the problem from an improper standpoint with uh, misinformation and a whole lot of ignorance. And if any of us want to truly be, you know, revolutionary, if any of us truly want to try to start combating this capitalist hellhole, start fixing the problems, and I mean truly fixing, ending the problems, not just, you know, changing their symptoms a little bit, um, but truly ending oppression. If we have an interest in that, we have to look towards Marxism. And now, this is why. I might have, you know, I don't know what my listener base is. I don't ever look at the comments on my stuff cuz I'm sure some of them are mean and I would cry. <laughs> but um, you know, I'm sure I have a little mix of some followers. You know, I probably have some communists, probably have some anarchists, some socialists, some curious folks who don't really know where they fall on the, you know, the political compass which is that whole shit, that, that political grid thing, ignore that stuff. That's all just a bunch of fucking unimportant shit. Unimportant shit. But if you are someone who has any interest in these ideas, we need to have a conversation. When you are looking at these problems, you have to look at them not only from an objective Standpoint, but you also have to look at them in the subjective from the perspective of the oppressed masses. So, let's say, in a situation similar to Cuba in 1959, you know, the revolution succeeds and the Cuban people are freed from the Bautista regime, and then you know, Fidel turns around and says, all right, folks, it was uh, it was nice knowing you, but, you know, we're anti-authority and we are anti-hierarchy, so we are not going to be installing a government. So you folks go ahead and, you know, do as you please. Um, we're going to eliminate money. We're going to eliminate the market. We're going to... Oh, wait, nope, they can't do that because they're not a government. Um <laughs> and they're just like, you know, all righty, see you folks, and, you know, also, they're anti-violence, so that whole revolution, obviously, would be waged without weapons of any kind. Does this sound like a very successful plan to you? Does this seem like something that could work? Now, I personally do not believe that a revolution such as the Cuban revolution could successfully a you know stay away from falling right back into the very same situation they were just in or b finding themselves in a much worse situation if the cuban people were to so daringly wage such a revolution, and then, you know, proceed as, you know, I explained a second ago. That would, in my opinion, be ridiculous. It would be illogical. And ultimately, we can all kind of see how that would probably end up affecting the people. Um, You know, that would cause a lot of repression, that would cause a lot of reaction, that would cause a lot of suffering. Um, and that's a reality that people have to deal with, not you and me who are sitting over here, twiddling our thumbs, reading our little books, deciding, you know, if we want to be an anarcho-syndicalist or a council communist or, you know, a scientific socialist. And, you know, sure, it's, it's cool to have that discussion, to have that, you know, study to have those ideas in your mind that's, you know, it's never a bad thing to learn new things and to broaden your mind. But the last one that I mentioned there, scientific socialism, is a word that I don't know how much people hear that term. But if you have two things about that term, First and foremost, that was the kind of like or one of the original names for what we now refer to as Marxism. And on top of that, this idea of scientific socialism came out of a, you know, a real um in-depth uh analysis of what Frederick Engels and Karl Marx called Utopian Socialism. So, you know, one might be able to decipher what the differences between the two are. But in case you can't, or, you know, just for clarification, Utopian Socialism is socialism that is based on ideas, Ultimately, you know, coming from the minds of quote-unquote geniuses who devise in their head a better way of doing things than the way that we do things now. Now, that sounds lovely. Does it not? The only problem with that is the fact that usually, and now I'm not saying always, because God forbid we ever, you know, make a... Totalizing statement, but most likely that will be very difficult to install a government, you know, that looks like this one guy's perfect conception of a fair government. That A probably won't go that way, and B. It probably won't end up, uh, if it does, getting installed, helping the people. Now, why is that? Well, if you look at a lot of the utopian socialists, they were capitalists. If they weren't capitalists, they were wealthy due to capitalist production um, and colonialism. They were, you know people who were able to, instead of toiling in the fields, working in the factories, suffering in the sweatshops and manufacturers, they got to sit down and write a nice little book about what they think would be a good government. Now, isn't that sweet? Now, this seems like something that could lead to some ill-founded ideas. Now, I'm not trying to front uh, on St. Simone. Robert Owens, you know, Feuerbach, Feuerbach, however you say that, um, not trying to stunt on them because quite obviously they were incredibly intelligent people. That is undeniable. Um, But they also were wrong. And so because of that, I am going to front on them and i am going to point out the fact that their theories were utterly illogical and now we have we we have quite an experience with you know illogical theories um one could do very little research into capitalism and recognize the illegitimacy and the unfoundedness of a theory based on constant growth and production within a world of finite resources. Pretty ridiculous attempt at, you know, a system, but whatever. What do I know? So scientific socialism, also known as Marxism, is a theory based off of social analysis, um, class analysis, And ultimately, due to, you know, the very time and intention of its development, was a critique of and a counter to utopian socialism. Now, one of the things that is most endemic to Marxism is its belief in a violent revolution. Now, we aren't going to go too much into that on this episode. We can do that another time, and I kind of have done that in an episode called On Violent Revolution. Um, But basically, Marxism, as a theory, recognizes, and I'm quoting here, although I probably will be quoting incorrectly, the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for itself it has to wholly smash it and build it anew now i think that last part about smashing it and building it anew i added i can't remember but it's it's from the communist manifesto um and it was one of the only um Corrections or additions ever made to the communist manifesto. It was in the, I think it was the 1872 publication, the year after the Paris commune. And that was added because prior to that, um, the only example of revolutions were examples where then the people just took power for themselves, ultimately just perpetuating the system, but in a different form. Um, The reason why Marx and Engels felt this was improper due to their analysis was because it didn't eliminate class antagonisms. It did not eliminate the separation between rich and poor. It did not eliminate the distinctions that made one person a part of the ruling class and one person a part of the working class. Now, that thing being private property. Now, the reason why private property is important to Marxism is because Marxism recognizes that when it comes to capitalism, its main uh, forming point for what they called primitive accumulation was private property. If you owned private property, um, you were able to make money on that. And that is the difference between private and personal property. A personal property is my water bottle, my toothbrush, things that I have for my own needs, but ultimately I am not using to make more money. Private property is ownership of things for the sake of profit. Now, we're not taught this. Very convenient, is it not? Um... And so Marxism recognizes how private property is endemic to the perpetuation of the capitalist system. Um, One way or another, however you slice it, even if it's new people in charge of that capitalism. Capitalism is a system which has laws, it has natural phenomenons, and it has a natural internal progression. Um, That is something that Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and many others have written extensively about, and you ought to learn about it. Um, If you don't like those theorists, well, you know what? I can't do nothing for you. Um, Go out and, you know, maybe read Rosa Luxemburg, um, Karl Liebst, um, look at, you know, Jose Marti, look at, uh, you know, Thomas Sankara, look at Kwame Nkrumah, look at uh you know all these different revolutionaries and socialists from all over the world who came to the same conclusions even folks you know in in Lenin's imperialism highest stage of capitalism he shows us that even the capitalists um a gentleman by the name of McDonald who i believe was an economist or a banker who wrote a book about the you know increasing amount of imperial well the increasing amount of external money um, flowing into internal, uh, you know, investment uh, from, you know, the standpoint of how that affects uh, you know, industrialization, how industrialization affects that, you know, how if one country can industrialize and invest in a whole nother country, then it's able to um, make profits off of that other country's production because of its initial ownership of you you know of capital which makes it capable of dominating the other country um but marxism recognizes that this is a fundamental law of capitalism it is not some idea that one guy had that we could change and make better um it's fundamental to capitalism marxism i believe and I'll say I believe because a lot of people want to argue on this, but Marxism is a science because it is principled. It is based on foundational laws. It is based on scientific and class analysis, whereas other theories are just that, theories, which that is what scientific socialism started out as, But Marx and Engels developed scientific socialism for their entire lives. They were, you know, Marx, I think, died in his 60s. And I think Engels died in his 70s or 80s. Um, I could be wrong on both of those, but they wrote for years. I mean, Marx's capital was, you know, (laughs) at least two decades worth of in depth, you know, actual scientific analysis. Um, but you know, whatever, it's just some theory, right? And it's just a bunch of crazy communists. Um, but Marxism, I believe, is the answer to the problems we are facing, because it recognizes that in a, a situation such as the one we are in, um, there can be no compromises. There can be no half measures, there can be no missteps, because if we do not eliminate the problem at its core, if we don't take out the fire at its base, this will perpetuate forward. And with everything going on all throughout the global south, with all that's going on with climate change and everything, we need Marxism as well as class Unity, as well as internationalism, as well as in depth study and incredible practice and and you know actions being taken to help one another, building dual power um, all of these things and more need to be done, but without Marxism at its core as a guiding principle as a tool in your toolkit you will ultimately come to, as Fred Hampton once said, conclusions that don't conclude. You will, quote-unquote, fix a problem which somehow or another still seems to linger around. Just as America has supposedly fixed um, racism, even though police officers and white supremacists have not been informed of such an event, these things keep happening. Racism still exists in America just as it ever did. It just, like capitalism, and like all things which are not finite, which nothing is, um, except for resources, it, it, it you know, these things change and develop differently over time and look different, um, But they don't go away. And to their core, they are all the same. They are based off of the oppression of one group, one class, over another. One group is in ownership of everything that one needs to produce food, to produce clothes, to produce uh, energy. And the other class has to buy it from that class. And the class that has to buy it has to work in order to buy it, which the owning class never does. But we are, supposedly, the lazy ones. Us. The working class. What a joke. Am I right? But I do have to go. Work is about to open. Love you all. Thank you for listening. If you are still listening, I appreciate you. Um, please go ahead and follow me on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at Indefensive of Liberation. And if for any reason you want to reach out to me there, go ahead and DM me. You can find my blog at forliberation.wixsite.com forward slash website. And you can also find me by reaching out to indefensiveliberation, no caps, no spaces, at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Stay safe, stay revolutionary, and we'll see you next time.